Uh, somebody would always end up naked. Somebody would always be on fire, and everybody was uh, was drunk to the max. And it was it was the absolute time of my life. Pickle a bomb off and we see where it went. You'd be throwing it sort of three or four miles. It went. Any- they went anywhere. <laughs> but it's great. It was brilliant fun. Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 157 of Extended. My name is Gareth Stringer. I'm the editor of Global Aviation Resource, and I'm your host for this episode where we are trying something completely new. Before we crack on, though, a couple of important messages. Huge, huge thank you to Andrew Kitney, who made a very, very kind donation to Extended in the past few weeks. Um, Andrew, I'm sure you'll be listening, and I just want you to know and for us to reiterate how appreciated um, that was. Um, it's very, very kind of you. Thank you so much indeed. Um, for those of you who are possibly new or are always looking for other ways to catch up with your podcasts, um, Extended is available in loads more places now. So as well as uh, Apple and Google, you can also get us on Spotify and and Amazon Music, as well as um, a host of others as well. So hopefully the fact you're listening to this means that isn't an issue. But um, if you need to find a different way of listening to us or an easier way, then maybe some of those will help. Now, tonight's episode, this is volume one of something we are calling The Debrief. When aviation people meet one another, they love to talk about aviation. Beers may be drunk banter may fly and we thought let's try and recreate that on extended and that's what we're doing tonight with volume one of the debrief we're going to go back 35 years it's the late 1980s the cold war is still in full swing and germany is very much the potential front line of any conflict um, our two guests, we've got Mike Napier, who's a Tornado GR1 pilot with 14 Squadron at Brigham, the Crusaders. And we've got Tug Wilson, an F4 Phantom pilot with 92 Squadron, the Cobras, which he tells me is the best fighter squadron of all time, based at RAF Field and Wrath. Keep um, telling you. <laughs> <laughs> both will be familiar to you listeners, because both have uh, appeared on Extended before. Mike's been on a number of times before. Um, interestingly, both first tourists in RF Germany, straight out of the um, their respective OCUs. Mike, I'm going to come to you first. What was it like being propelled into the front line in Germany, specifically straight from the OCU? And um, 
just to get things started out of the two of you who was uh living their best life to coin a modern phrase yeah. i think we all were <laughs> no it's i mean in answer to your question it was fantastic i um at the time the tornado force was building up but um they just re um Larbrook had just re-equipped, Bruggen was just finishing, and in fact, I was posted to the last Tornado Squadron to form, so I was sent to 14 brackets designate, close bracket squadron at uh, Bruggen, and we were kind of in the, in the leper colony down the side, while 14 proper Jaguar squadron, who uh, w- w- were still doing their thing and were still the um, you know, the, the, the combat-ready um, squadron house in Germany, and kind of looked down their nose at us, because we were two-seat pilots, and they called single-seat pilots, um, but it was it was um, it was tremendously exciting, uh, and at the time, most of the guys out of the because the the tornado train was done in two halves. There was the well, having got through the tactical weapons unit, which is as Tug will, 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 will doubt agree, was a sort of hard beasting time. You came out of that, and then in the tornado, you went to the Tri-National Tornado Training Establishment, the Triple TE at Cottesmore, and that was run by the Germans and Italians, and they kind of had a really chilled view on uh, the way training should be done and a really chilled view on how things should be. And it's like a holiday. The people actually wanted to teach you how to do things, which was quite remarkable, really, as opposed to beasting you and saying, I can do it, why can't you, which was the standard RF thing. So, of course, having had this little holiday, at the Triple T, learning the basics of, of how to fly a tornado. You then went to the Tornado Weapons Conversion Unit at Honington, where you were given the, you know, they obviously felt you missed out on being beasted, so they <laughs> gave you a real hard time through the Twiku. And um, in fact, I, I think I, I, I got the sympathy vote, actually, because I think they felt so sorry for me that <laughs> they thought they'd better help me through. Um, but anyway, it worked out, and I was desperate to go out, out to Germany because I, I, my dad had been in the army, so I'd lived out there. And I'd seen the front line, and, and I, I was so keen to get out there. And my mates um, were my really close friends that I've been through all the way through training with, were just a course ahead of me. And they said, Oh, rang me up. So, Mike, um, we've just been posted to 14 Squadron at uh, Bruggen. So I then rang the poster up and said, Hi, um, do you think I could go to 14 Squadron at Bruggen? And he, of course, was looking for you know, a list of names and places. He went, Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> that's, that's the one we'll sort it out. So I pitched up there with my mates, which was brilliant. And we turned up on this squadron that. Um, in fact, we just had a squadron reunion um, last weekend, and there were a whole bunch of us there from exactly at the same time. And it's just so fantastic to see people who I've known for such a long time. And I'm sure Tug will say the same thing about 92 Squadron. It's just, I mean, he might not about uh, 92 thought they're, they're brilliant, but I mean, 14 Squadron, I don't think we had, had any um, um, illusions about being the best tornado squadron. I think we're certainly the friendliest and the closest. And you know, 40 years later, 35 years later, we're still really good friends and have a great time together. So, yeah, it, it was uh, socially absolutely fantastic. Um, it was a, um, a life that revolved around the consumption of too much alcohol, which was neither big nor clever, but hugely good fun at the time. Um, we all got tax-free cars and drove it on tax-free petrol. And um, it, it was living the dream and, and getting to fly a tornado as well. <laughs> Tug, anyone who's read your book or listened to the episode of Extended that we did will know that the uh, social side of things was very important at Field and Wrath as well. So I, I'm guessing you're going to concur with quite a bit of what Mike's just said. I would, Jesus, as uh, he stopped talking yet. I, did, I mean, the, the <laughs> shortest question and the uh, and the longest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we might have been um, we we might have both been the first tourists in Germany, but um, I was there the last three years of Germany, whereas Mike um, Mike was there just after Hitler died, I think. Uh, so well, I was there for that I last three years um, too. <laughs> yeah, a, a similar sort of a similar sort of thing. I volunteered to uh, to go to Germany because pe- 
for some reason, people were avoiding it. You know, I, I think they saw it as a bit of a hard, hard school. Um, we didn't uh, – uh, tr- trust me, I'll back everything Mike, Mike says about tech weapons. It was brutal. And um, one of the good things about not going Tornado GR1 <laughs> was that you avoided Twiku, which had a a dog's reputation. So we, we kind of felt for those guys who'd, uh, who'd gone GR1. We didn't feel for them when they were on um, uh, Triple TE because that that was all a little bit manana and, uh, uh, and a lot of fun, whereas – you know, the Phantom OCU was just what it was. It was a bit of beasting and and prep you for the front line. And then I got to uh, I got to Germany and um, I um, I found that um, beer was ten pence a pint in the bar and gin was tuppence a tot. And uh, I, I'd um, I'd taken up golf at St Andrews, thinking oh, I'll have a bit of a go at this. Got to Germany and found there was no there were no golf courses. Sold my clubs for forty quid and got shit faced for uh, for about four months on the uh, on the proceeds. Like I said, with gin at tuppence a tot. I mean, you can't uh, you can't fail, can you? So I, I think it, when it comes down to it, I, I like the whole thing that that you say. You know, fourteen didn't see themselves as the best, but they were certainly the friendliest squadron, and that's what made the world go round. If you if you had your best mates on the squadron, it, it was the time of your life, and. Uh, just as uh, as you did with the fourteen reunion, I was at the ninety two reunion uh, back in uh, July this year. You know, people I've um, I served with thirty odd years ago, and still uh, still best of mates. You know, you, you can't buy that. No. Is it is it fair to say that you um you look down? I don't know if this is the right way of putting it, Mike. You look down your noses somewhat at some of the British based crews compared to those flying in Germany. I think we saw ourselves as the front line and we saw ourselves in RF Germany and, and I think the Phantom Squadrons and Harris Squadrons probably in the same way. We did, we, yeah, we did see ourselves as a cut above the, the rest of the Air Force. I think we felt that we were the front line and, and we were bloody good. So, yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, and same same from us as well. I've said we um, – and, and it's not right, but, you, you know, you, you embellish these things over time. We didn't rate anybody who'd not been to uh, uh, been to Germany you know, yeah. as uh, as Phantom Crew. So uh, that was that. But bear in mind, we didn't rate anybody. That was the uh, that was <laughs> the, they, any of the buggers up at, uh, at Bruggen and uh, Larbrook, and nobody but nobody spoke about the Harrier blokes over at Guttersloe. You know, it was it was just the <laughs> fact that they, you know, they were the absolute uh, uh, front line. But thankfully, they were all going to get captured within a day, and and we could have a proper war without them. You know, that was that was how we we looked. We it, you you just had this kind of. Um, there was, oh, there was, there was like a bravado about uh, about being on your squadron, and and the fact that it was in Germany just made it so much more than than just run of the mill. You know, we we've all served on British squadrons uh, or squadrons based in the UK. There's just something special about about being over there on the proper front line. Yeah. Like um, one thing you both touch on in your books is how personality driven these squadrons were. I mean, you just said that fourteen was. Yeah, one of the friendliest, but certainly when you when you got there, there were a few issues. Is that the right way of of putting it? Uh, uh, so much rested on who was in charge of these squadrons, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. And uh, oddly enough, I mean, because I, uh, I, I stayed, I was at Brooklyn for five years, so I did a second tour. I was on thirty one squadron, which is a very very different outfit, and was different because it was run 
to start with a guy called Pete Dunlop, who's the most charismatic man either I've ever met, um, except for Ali. Until tonight, yeah. Until tonight. Yeah, nice to meet you, Mike. But the 14, the guy who's running at Joe Whitford, was, he, he, was, he was a top man, but he, he was slightly distant. Um, but he, he'd gathered together all these people that because he, he'd been a poster. So his job before that was to choose his own team. Which he did, and, and he ended up sort of getting all these egos together in one sort of one squadron. And then there was the also rounds, like all our first tourists, who then came along and sort of, uh, you know, but but it meant, of course, that, that all the other guys, all, all these you know senior thrusting flight attendants, all trying to do each other out of, of a job, and all the all the flight commanders trying to sort of get one over on each other. So it was a it, it was a slightly disparate and um, yeah, dysfunctional family in, in many respects. But um, but I say. As Doug said, yeah, when you're with your mates, you don't really care. First two is just get on with it and just fly lots and get drunk, really. So, uh, um, for us, it, it, I mean, if you got posted to the Phantom, you pretty much knew you weren't a career um, officer in the uh, <laughs> in the Air Force. There's a reason why you got posted to, to that. I mean, we did have some we did have some thrusters, but I don't know if it's the same for you, Mike. But we we had this thing on the fleet where uh, those people that um, they were just the knobs on the squadron. You know, we. They, they constantly were pushing for promotion. Well, everybody worked hard to get them promoted so we could get them off the squadron. Um, and then they become somebody else's problem. And then, of course, they're flight commanders and somebody else's problem. And then they become bosses. And, and, and in the end, they end up bloody running the Air Force. And because they flew Phantoms, everybody go, God, everybody on Phantom must have been an arsehole. No, no, no. These were just the people we tried to get rid of, you know. Trust us, we're not, uh, we're not that bad, you know. Um, and but I guess I guess every fleet's got the same uh, got the same kind of setup as uh, as that. There's the odd one or two thrusters, and and the rest of us. I, th- I think we we discover quite early we're not going to be chief of the air staff, and we make the most of um, just the. And it was just a brotherhood in those days, you know, the brotherhood of the uh, uh, of the squadron, and and squeezing it until you could get the the most amount of juice out, you know, and then. You move on to the next tour. That was uh, that was the the mindset, I think. Yeah, I think so. Mike, tell us a bit about getting settled into your squadron. You had a few difficult trips, didn't you, at the start? Just where you had a few things keep going wrong. You're a bit unlucky with some technical stuff that was happening, but but also you both talk about there's some real common threads that you both touch on about operating in Germany. You know, the weather, um, the visibility never seems to be any, <laughs> any good. There's sort of busy airways. It's teeming with military aircraft. Um, you know, it sounded like a, a, you know, a real fascinating place to be operating on a daily basis. It was. And as you, as you say, the, the weather was, um, the, the big problem was visibility, which invariably, invariably crap actually. And you go along timing with your stopwatch to see you know how far how far ahead can i see can i see the was it five and a half k's we had to see to make it legal um and yeah if you counted very quickly if you yeah then, then it was probably about five and a half but everybody else was doing the same thing and you go whistling on suddenly this you know an essex team would come out of the <laughs> out of the gloom and go whistling past you, you where did that come from and the, i mean the scary thing was that on clear days, you, you look out and the sky would be full of aeroplanes. So you're thinking, well, they must be there almost every day. But yeah, it was quite getting used to this sort of stooging around in the murk of, of, of being treated like a big boy as opposed to being out of training. Although, although to start with, you are very much under training, doing the combat ready workup. Um, yeah, I, I did find it a difficult to start with. And I, I was just so, I mean, the tornado was a very complex aeroplane. Um, and, Getting used to it all, and it, just stupid things like we 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 low we did the low flying over Germany. The whole of Germany was a five hundred foot low flying area. Uh, we we um, did low flying in the UK at two fifty feet, which is actually 
feel quite comfortable there. 500 is a bit nebulous, really. And so, although there were 250-foot areas in Germany, I found the 500-foot quite difficult to fly, would you believe? Um, and I kept clipping ridges. And uh, we had to put the radar altimeter warner at um, 10% below, so it'd be at 450 feet. So if you clipped a ridge at just you know, 4 to 50 feet, where it went ding, and the, uh, the backseater, who at that stage was an um, you know, experienced mate, suddenly starts saying, well, he always clips ridges and you know, he needs to fly again. So... Uh, I was I was sent back to fly my again with a pilot, um, and that went horribly wrong because we were heading off over the, the over the glue mats, five hundred and a bit feet to make sure I didn't dick it this time. And suddenly this is bang, and we'd hit a bird because the um, huge great buzzards fly around about five hundred feet, would you believe? And we hit this thing, which um, took a huge great chunk out of the side of the aeroplane, and uh, yeah, diverted to Um and uh, yeah, another time we got airborne, and the, there's another loud bang. And this was the uh, a, a company that I have to say I was in close formation with this huge red sheet of flame coming out the front of the engine, which was the thing surging. So yeah, that put paid to that particular um, trip. And then I got airborne on the nose wheel, stuck down. So yeah, I, I was unlucky, really. It's the story of my life, <laughs> but I got I got there in the end. <laughs> I mean, this is a quite a new aircraft tug as well. He's talking about. Well, we yeah. used to we used to hear stories about a um, <laughs> we used to hear stories about a um, a pilot from Bruggen called Lucky Napier. I think they called him. Um, <laughs> I think that was it. Yeah. Yeah, always complained about things like the weather and so many aeroplanes when actually he was probably just a bit shit at the start, just like me. Uh, and that's the thing, you always find all these excuses. I tell you what, I tell you what's news to me, it was 500 feet in Germany, was it? That, that's news to me. I, I spent two years flying in there. I, I'd be lucky if I got above 500 feet, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. That's the, yeah was, I mean, the, the start of it was... Um, uh, the learning curve was vertical, wasn't it? That, it was, that, was, yeah. uh, that was the thing. Because there wasn't, um, there wasn't time to carry people over there. You, you needed to get there, get operational, and for us, get on queue. I guess you did nuclear queue, did you, we Mike? We did, yes. Yeah, yeah so, so the idea is get operational, get on QRA for us, or battle flight as we called it because we were hard, and, uh, and get on nuclear queue for, um, uh, for the, uh, the ground attack uh, guys. Everything else is um, is gravy. After that, you know, it's just um, you're just in the mix. You straight away you're um, you're you're gearing up to get operational, and then you're just another operational pilot on the uh, on the front line. And for us, you know, when we're doing things like survival scrambles and and scrambles uh, during exercise, first one to the runway has got the lead of however many aeroplanes yeah, turn up. So. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's no there's no room for we can't carry anybody, uh, and that's why that's why it's so difficult at the uh, at the start. I tell you what, it is quite uh, it's quite refreshing to a another pilot from that time uh, saying, you know, I was a bit shit at the start, you know, and uh, I, I was just hanging on for for grim uh, grim death, you know, which uh, which is what I was doing at uh, at the start. But uh, we weren't unique in that. Everybody went through that um, went through that process and um and eventually we all uh, we all became operational and and here we are uh, still today now reminiscing about how, how how great it was but the time i tell you what i was a i was a stress monster i was sweating buckets i stank like the <laughs> devil's bloody armpit after every trip but by god i was living it when you say you know you go out on a summer's day and the visibility was clear and there were hundreds of aeroplanes and you think bloody hell they must be there in the gloom as well but where that where the hell else would you want to be we didn't get that anywhere else in the world you know so where the hell else would uh, would you want to be what were the um 
rules, for want of a better word, on um, what if Mike in his Tornado GR1 came across Tug in his F4 Phantom? Was it? Would it have been game on, or would you have just got on with your yeah. daily business? So just from our side, two 360s and one reversal. I think was it something like that? I can't well, anyway, yeah, that was that, that's that was the rule that nobody ever nobody ever stuck to. So we had a um, <laughs> we had a thing in our, our authorization sheets. It was like the best thing ever. So we'd we'd write in the authorization sheets what we were going to do on the trip, and then we'd write TOO, which was targets of opportunity, yeah. and it was an RAF Germany thing. It was an eleven group thing back in the UK. If we happened upon any military aeroplane at all, we were allowed to attack them. And uh, their rules of engagement was, like Mike said, two 360 turns with a reversal in there, minimum height uh, 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 change and whatnot. But we could do what we wanted as fighters in order to get that um, uh, that kind of uh, training. And then you'd come across uh, some guy who was just, he probably had a bad trip, you know, in bad weather. He'd probably been told to fly with a pilot again and not a navigator <laughs> and just thought, oh, bollocks, you know, I think I'll just, I'll do a bit of turning. And these were like the best, the best times of our life. We'd end up doing bloody air combat at low level. You know, it was more massively illegal and, and such. But that was what, uh, that was what, what people did. That was why it was so much uh, fun in the melee of all the drama of what was going on. Yeah, and that was it. I mean, even you know, even as mud movers, if, if you saw something, we had a go at them. <laughs> and I yeah, guess you're yeah. you're checking your six the whole time. I, I guess there's nothing worse than getting back to the crew room. To word would travel, would it? That somebody had nailed a ninety two squadron F four or fourteen squadron GR one because the the GR one did actually turn a bit better than the Phantom. Um, and so if you got behind one, it was great. And, but the only time we got embarrassed when you turned, it, we, we came up across the German F4Fs and they turned really well because they got flat. So we went, ah, <laughs> oops. But uh, yeah, that's yeah it, it, it's oh, always funny to listen to, uh, behind it. <laughs> funny to listen to a deluded ground attack pilot. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> the, the GR1 turned better than the uh, than the Phantom. You see, mechanics have got nothing to do with it. It's all to do with mindset and who's, uh, who's behind the stick. <laughs> In fact, I did two 1v1 air combat trips on different days uh, against Phantoms. And the first, um, in fact, Steve Coombs, would he be on the squad at the same time as you? Or we, yeah. He was an OCU instructor when I went uh, when I went through the OCU, yeah. Right, okay. So he was, he was uh, he and I did TLP together. Oh, no, 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 different uh, different guy. Different. No, he, 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 TLP, that, that was the famous TLP course where Pete Lyons jumped out, I mean, um, search his engine. Oh, but anyway. So we ended up doing uh, 1v1. So we get uh, through our 203 over there, good to say, up we go, 1v1. And it's up quite even, actually. It's all, you know, every, we, we all felt that we'd, we'd done our bit. I don't know how, we had a, you know, a few splits and you know, we got our kills each and all the rest of it, so we were happy. So I then get, um, a, 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 about a month later, I told a 1v1 with a Phantom. It's over at the Ardennes. I can't what the, what was it, band box or something? I can't remember where it was now. But anyway, so I pitch up there, there's this Phantom. And I think, yeah, no worries. And we go in, and I've never seen anything shift like this before. And what I did not know was it was A, a guy called Chris Heems, who was a complete animal uh, from 1921 <laughs> at the time. B, his aeroplane was completely clean. And C, he was on his way to St. Atham for the thing to have its, uh, to, to, to have a check. So he had all the, um, all the fatigue life to use up. And he went, <laughs> we, we split. It lasted about 10 seconds. He shot me down. Then he was out of fuel and went off home. And I'm there with a full tank of the gas saying, come on, <laughs> come back and fight. <laughs> Where's round two? But it didn't happen. So that's quite interesting. So yeah, you are a clean phantom. It really could wipe your ass quite happily. But, um, <laughs> 
There we God, go. I guess um, a, a Cling Phantom, he could pull uh, 8G in that. It did. It the, did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there was me pulling four, I think, on a good day with the tanks and everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. um, Tug, everyone who's flown in Germany, at that who was flying in Germany at that time, talks about clutch radar and yeah. how important these that clutch was. Just tell us a bit about that, and I'm sure Mike will will probably be sitting there nodding as well. Yeah, I mean, every time we got airborne and went to uh, to medium level, clutch were the um, were the radar uh, based in Holland, weren't they? I think, uh, but they were the um, yeah, they were the uh, um, local radar. Uh, basically and uh they coordinated us uh as in and out so we spoke to clutch every day but the uh, uh the deal was did you ever go to the clutch beer call mike i didn't actually i unfortunately i didn't oh my god that, uh, yeah. so every every year yeah every year clutch put on a uh put on a beer call and invited all of the squadrons that they um controlled which was basically every fast jet squadron in central europe um, they rarely got. We rarely got the Americans coming from uh, from Susterberg, but um, but we'd have um, uh, us uh, both uh, both Phantom squadrons. Every GR one squadron from uh, from Bruggen and uh, and Larbrook would be there. Sometimes the Harriers would send some guys over, and then there's all the German F four Fs and all the F sixteen guys and and whatnot. And they held it in this. I, I don't even know where it was, but there was this massive old-style European tall-ceilinged um, uh, hall, uh, and it was it was just enormous. And they had these floor-to-ceiling drapes. These drapes must have been 40 feet tall. And um, anyway, so we, we got there, and it was free beer. You bought a stein, and then they, they, they filled it up for uh, for nothing each time. And, and strangely enough, we just got more and more uh, uh, shit-faced through, uh, through the night. And then they, they foolishly thought, well, we need to entertain these people, um, we'll uh, we'll give them some uh, some little games to play, and they had um, trestles with uh, with wood on, like an Oktoberfest uh, sawing competition. So you saw through that, and um, and there's a bit of inter inter rivalry with the squadrons, and then and then after you'd sawed through the wood, people started then sawing through the trestles that were holding the wood uh, together, and all of the, the there was all this wood. Well, what the hell do you do with a big pile of wood? Well, people set it on fire. So, in the middle of this massive hall, there is a there's a bonfire twenty feet high with the cream of Europe's aircrew dancing around it, singing. Uh, we were singing phantom songs. We had some F sixteen songs and uh, and all that sort of stuff. And there was a bit of jousting on bikes and 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 it all got horribly out of hand, where the hall filled with smoke from the top, and people were combat crawling under the smoke to the bar. And putting their steins up on the bar to get them refilled again, and then combat crawling out again, and then of course the drapes uh, go on fire, uh, the fire crews come, and all the fires put out, and we are sent home in disgrace, and uh, everybody's told off, and then we get invited next year to the clutch vehicle because that's exactly what they expected was going to happen. So um, I've no idea where it is. Uh, I talk to them every day. And I think I kind of met someone them, some of them. And uh, if I met them again, I wouldn't recognise them because I was I was so off my face. I, <laughs> I I wouldn't even know it. Don't even know how we got home. <laughs> Amazing. Um, Mike, Tuck mentioned that the fact that you both sat alert in your jobs for, for di you know for different reasons, but um, it was the Cold War. Just just tell our listeners now what how how did it feel? Did it 
did it feel like something could happen? I know this is a subject close to your heart because you've written a fantastic book on the Cold War. Um, you know, did, did, did you feel like you were at the front line and that something could happen? Yeah, we very much did. And, and it, it all felt very, very real. I mean, w- when you've got your um, mission folder with your uh, you know, your target run that's over in uh, you know, East Germany or Western Poland and you know, you know your target, um, you've memorised all the details, um, you wander into the, um, you know, the house and there is your aeroplane and there is a, a live real nuke underneath it simmering away it does feel you know very very real i hate to say it, you feel almost disappointed when you leave 24 hours later you haven't got to fly the mission <laughs> the, but you know we it really was um very much you know um feeling that you were you know that, that you were there right on the front line and, and and that you might be called at any moment to go go and do the do the work i mean it, it felt very real that said of course because we were very unlikely to fly um whereas the boys at Bournemouth did get airborne in battle flight um, we got to be very good at watching videos and playing risk and having arguments about things, but, um, which is about it. But the other thing, of course, is that whenever a flight commander was in QRA and needed to get out, he'd call for a first tourist to, uh, to spring him. So you'd end up you know, doing ra- rather more than your fair share because every time a flight commander in, there'd be a phone call saying, right, first tourist to QRA, <laughs> Napier, <laughs> off you go. No, oh, thanks. <laughs> So I did spend rather more time than I think I deserved there, but, um, yeah, it did, it did, it, it, it was very real. Um, and uh, yeah, so seeing the real the real thing, the real nuke there, and seeing the real targets was uh, yeah quite sobering really. Tug, you um really embraced battle flight, didn't didn't you? You couldn't kind of wait to get on there. Yeah, it's why I joined. You know, why why wouldn't you? Uh, why wouldn't you want to do that? And the fact that they called it battle flight and not QRA, you know, and we were on five minutes you know and it was uh, it was all that uh, sort of stuff now uh joking aside we uh we constantly joke about other fleets you know about um uh so we would always look at the gr1 guys as being uh, it's just a bit bland you know where uh, the the jets a bit bland and and that was that uh the harrier guys we hated because they were just pompous asses most of the time uh, the jag bloats couldn't carry anything. It was it was all that. We really respected the Buccaneer guys because they flew an aeroplane that was as old as ours and uh, <laughs> and such. But I tell you what, joking aside, um, because QRA a battle flight was my life and it was why I joined. Uh, the respect I had for the guys that were doing nuclear Q was just off the charts. And and like I said, no, no banter uh, with that whatsoever. The um, I used to um, uh, we were talking earlier about. Um, uh, a guy I was on exchange with, a GR backseater, and he told me what it took to uh, to go on to nuclear Q, and it just it sounded like an absolute ball's ache. Uh, but the professionalism that those guys needed, you know, in order to, I mean, that's that's some responsibility to put on to the shoulders of two guys. One of one of whom is probably only like twenty two, twenty three years old uh, at that point. That was just that's just off the charts uh, uh, respect uh, uh, from us. Everything else we did, we didn't uh, we didn't give a fig for uh, anything else that they did. But that uh, that nuclear Q thing was um, I, I I still to this day I think that's that's something special. That's proper that's proper fighter pilot uh, stuff. Um. Left me speechless now. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, (laughs) solidarity, brother. Um, How how often would you have to sit alert, Mike, at at Brogan? 
Well, there, there were each squadron had had one airplane, I think, and there might even have been at one stage five. I can't remember now. Um, so you would so with thirty six guys, it's all thirty six crews, let's say, uh, and a whole lot of flight commanders who, who weren't going to do anything. So at least one once a month. Um, however, of course, if, if one squadron is away, then another squadron has to take over its queue commitment. So now we're down to maybe twice a month. Um, and as I mentioned, people will be off sick leave, etc. So I probably, I, I reckon I probably did it about three, three or four times a month, um, something like that. Um, so it um, came around rather than nauseatingly often. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, you, you both got to fly um, across the globe, but let's just talk about Europe for a minute. Tug, those sort of ranges, those trips away that you used to do. Um, I want to talk about Dechi separately because that's something that you both talk about. But yeah. you went to some fantastic places just across Europe, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, and um, and uh, again, these these are things that just don't happen uh, uh, anymore. We get uh, we get these ranges, so maybe about twelve a year for each squadron, two jets go anywhere in Europe, and there was a training uh, uh, thing with it that. Um, you know, you uh, it was about going to different airfields, talking to different air traffic services. Come the war, I'd basically shoot off all my rockets, use up all my gas, and I'd land at the nearest airfield and ask them to arm me up and fuel me up, and I'd I'd be gone again. So that was really the training uh, value uh, out of it. What it turned into was a uh, you know a massive uh, two night piss up um, with. Uh, Three of your best mates uh, uh, from the uh, from the squadron. We went to Alborg, which was like the party capital of uh, of Europe, and uh, and basically shot our bolt too early. We 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 arrived at uh, before lunch, started drinking at lunchtime. Come ten o'clock, we were we were calied and uh, and in this town where there was nobody, and we just thought worst party town we've ever been to. As we were going to bed, every, all the all the um, uh, all the Danes were, were coming out to party, so we shot our bolt a bit early and then uh, tried to, uh, uh, you know, tried to start a bit later the uh, uh, the next night. But that would that was a great uh, place. We went to Cyprus all the time, which is just a great uh, a great place to party as uh, uh, as well. And um, and you know, we we did a bit of growing up there, you know, and going to going to places like Cyprus, going to uh, places in Denmark and France and and stuff like that. It was all a bit character building. You were flying in different airspace, and it was all a bit strange. And um, and of course, there's the uh, there's the pressure of arriving at this at this base. You know, so Alborg had F-16s. Well, the last thing we need to do is turn up in a clatter of bits because we'll just look like knobheads in front of uh, these brilliant uh, fighter pilots as we viewed them. You know, they're under the same pressure when they come to Wildenrath or go to Bruggen and uh, and such. But it was brilliant character-building uh, stuff and, and superb parties as well. Did you know that the first G-suit for British pilots was essentially a chest-high pair of fishermen's waders which were filled with two gallons of water? The water automatically squeezed the pilot's legs as positive G was applied. Did you also know that the Islamic Republic of Iran Air Force's oldest McDonnell Douglas F-4D Phantom is set to clock up more than 70 years in service, having been delivered in 1968 and now subject to life extension programmes taking it to 2040? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. 
If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. Mike, what are your memories of the 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 other um, the aircraft and the air forces that you would come up against and that you would that your paths would cross with at the time? Uh, you know, an, an enthusiast like me looks back at that age when I was you know when I was growing up, and all I can think of is you know starfighters and Mirage F ones and G ninety ones and obviously F fifteen and F sixteen were both around at that time, but uh, you must have flown against and with so many different types and so many different air forces yeah, yeah we did um i mean in terms of trying against people uh, day-to-day in journalists because we kind of have already mentioned yeah, that there was everything out there um the Pihai masters uh, a particular favorite of the makes from Vildenroth, but you, you went there that's where every single fighter pilot in um, 28F went to for their cap so if you went there there'd be all sorts hoovering around trying to take names and kick ass so it's a great place to go and see all those things that you mentioned if you went into belgium there'd be the f-16s there which was interesting because they still had the nine golfs so they had to get behind you and get you know into the sort of um you know, almost like a gun skill sort of situation so again it wasn't like people saw you and shot you they really had to fight to, to get there okay f-16 not that difficult but, but again it was it, it was different again um and we came across f-15s um uh, our own Harriers, dare I say it, and also uh, Mirage, Mirage 2000 out in, in Dechi. And I'll tell you about those in, in a bit when we come to, to, to the Dechi bit. Um, and um, Canadian CF-18s. I did a squadron exchange with the uh, CF-18 guys down at Baden Solling. In fact, I, I was I'm lucky I was in the home team, but they, they came up and um, and we saw them again. It had fantastic machine. It didn't didn't go anywhere though, and uh, I did get a back seat riding one, which is quite funny because uh, they they had a, they brought a two seater. Um, to, to give packs rides and we on the, I was on 31 squadron at the time and uh, we had this huge great um, panda bear which I think the Jaguar squadron had um, had, had, had as a bit of a, um, uh, a, a mascot and um, it had its own logbook and the F-18 guy says right we're going to take it flying what I hadn't spotted was there was one flight one aeroplane a panda and me so we got stuck in the back of this F-18 this huge great panda stuck in the front we got airborne and again, this is the way the F-18 works we got airborne because they, they, they knew that they were frightened about North Germany because it's flat boring and there's nothing there and you can get lost easily so they were like right, we're going to go into Area 7 which is where their, their bed and bus was um, where they knew so we did high level down there where I was trying to stuff this book get panda down the side of the seat um, and we got down and then there's this amazing um, you know, radar display you see dots coming up and think wow this is amazing like space invaders and it's like we've got this uh, two contacts on the nose and we're going to hook out and split in behind but what these guys hadn't spotted was that the two guys that they thought they were hooking in behind were actually the front pair of this huge great gorilla because the tactical leadership program TLP had actually sent out its gorillas to Area Seven that day, and as they turned in, they suddenly realised that they were turning their asses towards every you know, all the top fighter pilots in in in, in Europe. So uh, there was a quick oh my god, and a sort of eight G turn vertical upwards and get out of there. And then of course they run out of fuel and it's back home again. And uh, yeah, try and get try and get the panda bear from out the, the side of the ejection seat to get in the canopy. Love it, uh, yeah. love it. I'll tell you what, we'd have promoted that panda on our squadron and uh, got it off to uh, 56 or somewhere like that. Get rid of it. <laughs> Tug, that's a perfect segue. What was it like going back to work? Uh, and I mean, you know, yeah. for a trip, as it were, 
going back to the UK as an RAF Germany pilot, you, yeah, I know that you guys both would go back across the UK for training of one sort or another. And did you feel a bit special going back across from Germany? Yeah, I've always felt special. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. my well, mum told me from, from the day I was born. My mum told me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we got. Um, I, I, uh, I've kind of. Uh, put this in the uh, uh, in the book. I got to 56 Squadron. 56 was a great squadron. It, it really was. Lots of very good quality people, but just some some a tiny amount of um, of people who had a bit of a chip on their shoulder about us coming from Germany. I, and um, there were lots of ex-Germany people on 56. So there, there was no there shouldn't have been an issue. But there was uh, with a couple of uh, couple of three guys. And um to tell you the truth, there was stuff that I'd not done in Germany that the uh, UK squadrons did bread and butter. I'd not done a lot of tanking, so um, they were tanking gods, you know. So I had to had to pick my game up uh, uh, going tanking. Um, I'd, um, we didn't do extended eight-hour QRA sorties like those guys did with lots of tanking. Uh, so I'd not done that sort of stuff. But when I looked at the workup that the um, idiot QY um uh, I, I got to think about QI, bloody eight QIs. Uh, you're not QI, are you, Mike? No. <laughs> no thank God for that. We're in good company here then. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's back to attack weapons and all those scars from the uh, from the QIs there. <laughs> but the, the QI in charge of our workup for the three of us that came back from Germany to 56, God, he, he had us on like a 40-trip workup. We've been operational for 18 months, you know. And uh, But I think, that, I think it came to a head when um, I said, What's what's this here? One v one lollipies, it, it was called, and he said that's low level overland intercepts. And I said, what the hell do you think I've been doing for the past two years of my life? I've been doing eight versus <laughs> bloody sixteen. You know, I'm not doing a one v one for you and crossed it out with my own red pen. Uh, so th- there was a little bit, there was a little bit of that, but overall, overall, that that was a great squadron uh, to be. I had some of the best times, um, certainly in Detchi with. Um, uh, with fifty six squadron, but yeah, there was there was just that little bit of uh, we didn't do ourselves any favors. Don't get me wrong, uh, we had a bit of swagger in the bar because we were Germany, and 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 that was that. You know, it's just part of the life. You know, it it meant that it didn't mean to say that were we to go uh, into war, if I've got somebody on my wing who'd not been injured, it didn't matter. It was another phantom on my wing, and and I'm sure that's how they uh, uh, they thought of uh, uh, thought of me. It was good. Uh, it was good bit of aggravation in the bar once in a while kept my blood pressure up you know kept me alive <laughs> mike did you work with the uk-based tornado squadrons very much or, or not or did you were you mainly did our own thing and bizarre i mean the tornado um, force was was quite fractured in some respects in, in that there was us at Brook and there was larbrook who we kind of looked down upon um, and then there was the UK team at Marham, who we looked down upon even further. So, so we saw there's this definitely sort of ziggurat, if you like, of, uh, of, um, of professionals and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, despite the fact, obviously, we had good mates on, on Larbrook squadrons and, and Marham squadrons that we'd have had peers with and everything else. But um, no, we didn't. We, we tended to do our thing. And even, I mean, at Bruggen, again, um, the Bruggen Jaguar wing had been a seamless, um, you know, work together and all the rest of it. And, but again, we each squadron had its own way that was better than every other squadron's way. So we kind of, again, so, so, so even in the hierarchy, there was our squadron, other Bruggen squadrons, Larbert squadrons, Marham squadrons is how it worked. Um, but we, but no, we, we didn't really have anything to do with, with, with the Marham squadrons at all. 
Let's talk about Sardinia. It's something you both God talk about last, in your respective God, books. We've waited all night um, to get the <laughs> <laughs> um, Tug, is it fair to say that um, from both a work and play perspective that Detchi was a very, very special, unforgettable place to go? Best place in the world for a uh, fighter squadron. Although um, when you read, um, um, there's a bit of product placement coming here. When you read my next book, which is due out in January, uh, you'll see that I managed to go to Detchi twice and the people I went with sucked all the joy out of it for me. So I'd prefer ah. to remember Detchi from uh, uh, from a phantom point of view. It's where a fighter squadron went to be a fighter squadron. It, uh, we flew clean aeroplanes, uh, you know, up to, 7g I, I think at the time it, it was then um trips lasted 20 minutes and then we were out of gas we flew against rocket ships of f-104s you know they, they, their trips were even shorter than ours um we flew against the americans and and tried our best to beat them up all of the europeans and the germans were a big presence there as well and then come the evening i mean we fought hard in the aeroplanes some of the best fun I've ever had um, with my trousers on uh, in those uh, in those trips, and then um, and then some of the best fun I've ever had with my trousers off that seemed to disappear whenever we got into the pig and tape bar um, in the um, uh, in the block afterwards. Uh, somebody would always end up naked. Somebody would always be on fire, and everybody was uh, was drunk to the max. And it was it was the absolute time of my life. I, I imagine it's taken years off my life, but. What what a decent trade, you know. It was just it was just fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I know um, uh, the GR guys um, uh, went out to Detchi as uh, as well, but yeah, you set uh, fire to did, their fridge. Oh, uh, we did set fire to your yeah. fridge. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, in case you're not in case you're actually, not going to mention yeah. it. I am. Yeah, all right. <laughs> the story is we didn't set fire to the fridge. What we did was we well, filled it up with water, expecting it was going to turn into one massive. Uh, <laughs> A piece of ice, but of course, uh, it being an Italian freezer, um, it wasn't. It wasn't the best built, and it did set. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. All right, it did end up on fire. Yeah, there was something on fire nearly every night in Detchi. I've, I've, I've got to say, we have a fascination with uh, uh, with fire. Um, but uh, but yeah, to, uh, we always felt a bit sorry for the GR guys because you went to Capafrasco, didn't you? And you did loads of bombing and stuff like that. And then once in a while, you know, we get some GRs in the in the range and do some combat against them. Uh, but um, all the all the fun was in the in the combat. It really was. How about you, Mike? Well, I was going to say, um, Tug was saying taking years off his life, and it took all my hair off me actually. That's, uh, but yeah, it was brilliant. It was absolutely fantastic because we we uh, as Tug has, has already mentioned, we had two bites at the cherry. So we had. It was like a sort of Mediterranean adventure holiday for boys. I mean, we turn up there with the aeroplanes. We'd have our APC armor practice camp, and that was it was brilliant because instead of all, all the normal sort of planning and everything else, you'd just get airborne and uh, with eight bombs and two guns, and you go and drop eight bombs and fire off the guns, and then come home again. Um, you know, after twenty minutes or whatever on the range. Um, so that that was one thing that we did. And you'd be flying twice a day, um, and it was just brilliant fun. We do all sorts of different. You'd start off doing these standard um, weapons and but then you go into all sorts of really esoteric things and take lots of reversionary stuff. Um, and th- that's where, yeah, that's where I, because I, I, um, we weren't initially allowed to, to fire the gun, and then that got cleared while I was on the squadron, so I, I got to fire it. And then we got to use the laser 
as a range sensor, and that's when I killed two horses. Um, so that was uh, all good fun. Um, but um, but of course, having having, I mean, you'd end up doing all this reversionary bombing. So you'd end up um, with, with, you know, with, with, in the front seat. It was great because you kind of just um, you, you 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 pick all the bomb off when, when the side of the right. But from the back seat, they were doing it on radar cursor, and we were actually also. Um, lofting the bombs reversionary so the, the guy would come put his radar cursor out and then give you a countdown and then you started to pull up and then he starts to do a stopwatch and eventually would just pickle a bomb off and see where it went so you'd be throwing it sort of three or four miles it went any- they went anywhere <laughs> but it was, great. it was brilliant fun and then we also went for apc um, to do exactly what, what tugs said and, and we fought amongst ourselves which was great fun we fought with other people with um Starfighters, exactly that. You'd see them coming, <laughs> they just blow through at 1.5 and then disappear, and you never see them again. Um, F-15Es, which were great fun, and we'd um, uh, Mirage 2000s, which were bloody invisible. They were hilarious, they were. You'd be quite minding your own business, and uh, suddenly as you go, yeah, Mike, you're dead. How did that happen? That's because some Mirage you haven't seen came in. But we actually got our, our way around that. We actually made them the... Um, to, as a pair, we made them the bombers, and we had four of us. We were the fighters, so we kind of tied them up, and that's quite fun to do. Uh, but yeah, so we used to have great fun. And I was talking. So was, was that like was that like six aeroplanes not having a clue what they were doing then? Correct. Two yes. Bombers <laughs> and four tornadoes of fighters. At least we could see them. <laughs> if I could have four minutes of my life back again, it would be what you've just said, Mike. Apart from. The killing two horses. Now, come on, that's the story. <laughs> so, so I've got, I've got to say, um, listener, you're you're just listening to the audio of this, but we're all sit here, sitting here, looking at each other, and tug your face when Mike just said he killed two horses <laughs> was an absolute picture. Did you did you fill them full of water, expecting they'd turn into ice, and then they just <laughs> went on fire? Ah, <laughs> oh, classic Italian fridge horse. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I thought they were dead actually because I wasn't expecting them to be where they were. <laughs> <laughs> so they just wandered onto the range, did they? Yeah, well, basically, what, what, what that was, um, so we, we, we uh, the, the deal was when you arrived at the range, you did your, you, know, you did bombs, then, then strafing, and you did your safety height pass, so you go whistle over the top, and you had some, there were no ships and no sheeps in the bay. And then no sheep, And yep. um, round you went, tip in, um, sight on the target, roughly, make all switches, call in hot, you know, recover, and the, there's an acoustic acoustic course which um basically counted the number of shells that went past it so they give you as, as you pulled up they usually said ah oh, 10 hits yeah. or no hits or whatever it was and in this particular case there was actually dead silence and so the number two came in and uh, you know in hot dead silence good off off dry dead silence number three comes in same thing there wasn't a number four he, he'd gone us like that usually happens in the tornado um things i come in again as i call in hot the next voice says you have killed two horses and basically what happened was the um, the, the ranger, we, we, we were using the, the laser for the first time as a ranging sensor, and it actually, the, the, there was a fault in, in the software. Um, but also I yeah, had... Yeah, don't, don't, don't bore us with the QI bollocks. Just <laughs> tell me about the horses. <laughs> the, these horses apparently were somewhere near the straight panels. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and obviously, I, yeah, I ended up shooting them instead of the straight panels. Um I tell you what, Gareth, you've just lost all of your vegan um, uh, listeners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we've got many vegan listeners actually. Well, you haven't got any from now on, that's for sure. <laughs> because it was the first time we used the laser um, as a, as a centre. When I came back, the boss was on the line, and I was thinking, "Oh my god, he's heard what's happened." I'm waiting for my bollocking. But in fact, he and the the, the Italian station commander having some a glass of fizz to celebrate using the the laser 
without realising that I just massacred two horses. <laughs> on the, but at on least the, steak was on at the officers' club that night. Well, yeah. Apparently, yeah. apparently yeah. the rain staff ate very well. They were quite pleased, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess we, we should probably mention that um, you've kind of just alluded to it a little bit. Um, Tug, you're operating an, an aircraft that, although when you came to the Phantom, you didn't know how long she had left you knew that she was in the twilight of her career mike you're operating an aircraft that it's not brand new to the air force but it's still uh you know it's growing isn't it and it's becoming a you know the platform that it eventually came can either of you kind of sitting here think god actually i'd quite like to have flown a new aircraft or mike you're thinking god i'd love to have flown a old behemoth like the phantom and if Mike says yes, you know, with his learned face and nods his uh, nods his head, scratching his chin, yeah, someone would like to trip in the Phantom. You're not getting one, mate. That was no, it. No, you uh, you, no, you went in round attack, and that is your life. Yeah, well, oddly enough, though, that, that was all I wanted to do all, all through training. I wanted to fly Phantoms until I got to the um, TWU, and I realised that well, two things. Firstly, I was actually quite good at low flying, and that, and I quite enjoyed that. And secondly, I know all the stories about the Phantom OCU, and I, and I, I was not the best pilot at flying circuits and other such things. So I thought if I went there, I'm going to end up fairly easily, but yeah, being chopped for not being able to yeah. fly circuits or something. Um, whereas I tell you what, though, isn't it? Um, isn't it funny? I reckon we've all got a similar story. That I went air defence because I was shit at ground attack, uh, and it's funny that <laughs> the, the life kind of chooses you, doesn't it? There's no does, way. I, there's no way I could have passed a, uh, a ground attack OCU. Just absolutely no way. All right, I had a bit of a knack for uh, 3D picture and mental arithmetic and, and intercepts, but actually, it was it, the writing was on the wall. I wasn't going ground attack. You know, you reckon you reckon you couldn't fly circuits. You're right. The Phantom would have killed you in the circuit. Yeah, yeah, you know, so it, uh, it naturally uh, it naturally chooses you, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you've both, you've both mentioned reputations tonight. Tug, Tug, you mentioned about the Twiku, the reputation that Twiku had, and Mike, you've just mentioned about the reputation that the um, that the Phantom OCU had. It, 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 although the Air Force was a lot bigger at that time, it's still you know it's a small community, isn't it? And and obviously reputations carried a lot of weight, didn't they? Yeah, I think they did. And uh, I mean, in, in the case of the Phantom OCU, well, the guy who was who came top of the we were on the same BFGS course. He was, of course, ahead of me on the on AFGS, came top, um, did very well on the um, uh, TW, went to the Phantom and was chopped um, and then went to the Tornado and was proven to be a very good very good Tornado pilot and probably would have been a very good oh. Phantom pilot. There's a very strange thing happening, I think, in the uh, in, in the Phantom world, certainly at the OCU. In fairness, I mean, Tokyo had a very um, severe um, reputation, but... But again, as I found, if, if you put the work in and made the effort, they, they bent over back, backwards to help you, really. So they, did, they gave you a hard time, but they actually did try and help you as well. So I, I think um, of the two, I think the tornado um, path was a, was a rather more um, gentle one, shall we say, less severe. Would you concur with that, Tuck? Yeah, of course I would. The, the, the thing <laughs> I did was a lot harder than uh, than is. You know, I could, have, I could have pitched up in my sleep and got through uh, triple TE, you know, I think most people did actually. Where when it uh, when it comes to it, you know, and take four months of pain at uh, Twickew, and then you've got the life of Riley at the uh, at the front line. Yeah, every uh, every circuit was an adventure in the Phantom. It really was. 
uh, it, and you know, fifty-fifty shot whether you were going to make it or not onto the uh, onto the ground. But that's really living. That is, you know, we were uh, uh, we were just felt as though we were living on the edge of our uh, of our performance every uh, every time. But looking over the fence, not not a hope. I I would have enjoyed uh, Twicky. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I uh, I would have uh, either been chopped or uh, or hated it. And that would have coloured my um, my view of that jet for the rest of my time. You know, I love the Phantom. I had a hard time on the uh, on the OCU, but it's supposed to be hard, isn't it? That's that's the deal. Yes, that's true. Um, OCUs are supposed to be tough um, because the next thing up is uh, is operational on the on the front line. So you you you, you know that when you sign up uh, sign up to it, you know it's going to be uh, uh, you're not just turning up and punching the clock. So you put yourself uh, into it, and then. Years later, you write books and uh, and tell all the horror stories to people because actually, when you look back on it, you cannot imagine why you put up with most of the shit that you put up with, and 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 people people think we've made these stories up. Uh, some some people, it you know, it can't have been as bad as that. Well, you know, come and walk in my boots, and you'll see that it was. Yes, Tiger. I know you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you have a um? a senior officer on your OCU course who's doing a refresher because he was coming back to the Phantom and he got chopped. You're right, Gareth, you are wrong. Um, he wasn't <laughs> on my course. Yeah. Or, he was or on had our, he been on, he, yeah, or he'd he been on, on a our, previous. He was on our senior course. Right. And when he, when he got, um, he was going to be boss of a squadron. He'd been away. He, he was a Phantom guy. He'd been away uh, on a ground tour, came back. And uh, and they bloody chopped him. And uh, you know, if they're going to chop a wing commander mm. who's got a thousand hours on the Phantom, what chance have I got as an ab initio kid who doesn't know his ass from his elbow most of the <laughs> most of the time? And as soon as uh, as soon as somebody even fails a trip uh, on a course or on the squadron uh, on your senior course, oh god, you're all vulnerable then, and it's all it's all doom and gro- gloom, isn't it? And you have to drag yourself out of the mire. But yeah, to chop that guy that that sent ripples through the whole of uh, the student body. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. But there again, I mean, three people were chopped off my course. You know, that was uh, that was even worse. Um, that was very very close to home. I failed a, a trip on the OCU. It, it was miserable. It just it just was. But I yeah, you know, assume, yeah. Don't we all assume that everybody else is better than we are? And so when they start yeah coming, yeah like, oh yeah. My God. <laughs> Although in the case of people going GR one, that is that is true, Mike. You know, most of the air force is better than you. They all are better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Tug, when I interviewed you last time, you did talk a bit about that sort of imposter syndrome. Mike, is is that something you would concur with, Mike? Do you think that's a bit of a pilot thing, the imposter syndrome? Because I think I think we're all perfectionists, and we all want to do and, and. there is a you know it, there is a perfect um, way that you can do things, and you aspire to that. And you think that you should be able to do it, and uh, and the other thing is, of course, that going through training, everybody kind of is a bit blustering, telling you how good they are. Whereas the reality is that everybody finds it difficult, and people aren't quite as good as that. And also that you you're never quite going to make that perfect um, sort of score, as it were, if you if you're doing it as a very inexperienced first tourist stroke uh, trainee. Whereas you know we've been doing it for you know, a few years, then yeah, you might manage that, that. But so, so it's that sort of thinking that realizing that you that you can't make whatever it is stand, you know, the, the, the highest standard. That um, and I think you, yeah, you, you do feel that you wonder when you're going to get found out. 
Um, I have to say that once I got on the tennis, once I'd done my bit on um, uh, on my first tour, I, I did feel much more confident after that. Certainly, with you know, I, I did flight command tour, and I, I knew that by then, having done a, a tour of instructing on tactical weapons unit, that you know that I, I could crack it all and I could do things better than most of the other guys on the squadron. Um, but before that, certainly my first tour, it was definitely a bit of a, uh, a, a bit of imposter syndrome. And I think also j- just to, to move forward, having done um, twenty years of airline flying. I kept finding that because every time you go in for your six-monthly simulator check, you're treated like a three-year-old. And after a while, <laughs> you are a three-year-old. And every time, it just gets more and more difficult because you think, I can't believe I've been doing this 20 years, but I'm still a three-year-old. So, yeah, <laughs> you found out. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a pilot thing, I think. Um, the final thing I just wanted to talk to touch on is tack weapons because um, you both talk about it in terms of its, um, yeah, its reputation – I think preceded it and then there was a reality that it was you know brutal's a, a word you've both used i think um you both went on to be instructors at attack weapons i think so i'm, I'm getting a, a little bit of sort of poacher termed gamekeeper here or whatever the uh whatever the saying is i'm going to shy away from using the word hypocritical but uh were you guys responsible for for changing it or uh was it just different by the time you got there it's how you perceive it. And as a student, you perceive it differently from being on the staff. And on the staff, I believe that I was giving guys a chance. It was quite funny, actually. On my a course that I ran, a couple of the guys, I ended up doing their end of course SAP, uh, simulation SAP profile, which is quite, it was quite tense. You, know, you go off, they, they were leading, you were being bounced by somebody else. It was, you know, imagine flying around in the Hawk with, uh, you know, with a map and stopwatch and you know, uh, doing a couple of attacks. Most of it. It, it was tough. But you kind of give them leeway. And I remember one guy saying, well done, you've passed. And there were new, there's a great list of things that he'd done completely wrong and fucked up. But I thought, no, that was, that was, that was okay. And I looked at him and I suddenly realized there's no point in me telling him this great list of things because he wasn't going to take it in at all. And he thought he was the, you know, the bee's knees. But actually, he had just scraped through the course. <laughs> but you know, but you do your bit. So yeah, and, and there's—I mean, I can think of another guy who I, I did no service to at all, who, who I instructed very badly, who um, whose who's confidence I managed to completely destroy, which I'm not very really proud of at all. Um, again, trying to do my best, but actually screwing it up in spades. So it's it's, uh, it's it's perceptions really. I think staff you perceive it one way, and as a as a student you perceive it another way. Talk. Yeah, uh, first off, you can't say I shy away from saying hypocritical and then use the word hypocritical. You know, that's not just a word, okay? Um, and also, I've, I've had a lot of fun up till now on this, uh, and now all we're going to do is bring the mood down and uh, and talk about tech weapons. Yeah, I've, 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 yeah well, we'll, um, we'll, we'll gloss over my uh, time as a student at, at tech weapons. I suppose when I became – and I was the last ever – Old style tactics instructor out of uh, out of Broadie. So there were there were qualified flying Two instructors who got out to fly the aeroplane. There were QIs, qualified weapons instructors who were absolute bastards. And uh, there were in the middle were the TIs, the tactics instructors who taught NCOM at low level, and uh, and they were student friend. And that was pretty much how it uh, how it went. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I tried not to be uh, tried not to be a, a bastard like the the ones I'd, I'd had before, but I fell into that trap as uh, uh, as well. I think to start off with, bear in mind all I'm teaching is air combat and low level. It's like the best job you could ever have in your life, and so I kind of got into the whole thing of, oh, you know, the air combat. I've got to make a reputation for myself as being good at air combat myself and and such. 
and forgot it, it's not about you, it's about the students. And um, very, very early on, I think it was the first course I taught, um, they had a uh, their postings night, which was always a very, very drunken night. And they gave out this little present. It was to the best fighter pilot on the squadron, and I won that present. Uh, and so I went up to get my prize, and it was a flying helmet painted in squadron colours, uh, uh, tiger stripes to 74 squadron. I got this helmet, and it was uh, right popping on tug, and they'd had it shrunk to the lowest size, so you couldn't get it on your head. And it was the, basically the big head prize. And so <laughs> it was a brilliant piece of banter. But you know what? It just stung me a little bit that, oh, geez, is this what the students think of me? I need to change my act a little bit. And then what I hope I did after that was become a much more uh, compassionate instructor uh, from there, thought it was more about these students. And then I, I tried to find a pet project on each course, somebody who was a good guy but was really struggling like I did, uh, somebody who was failing trips, and if they came back from a failed trip with the right attitude, then they were my pet project. And one of them was a raging bloody success, and he ended up his second tour uh, after going to the F3 was an F14 exchange with the US Navy, but he was he was absolutely shit at low level, and I I kind of gave him a free pass one day, um, uh, just because I thought God if he fails this trip he's going to fail the course, and this would be a tragedy because he's such a good guy and we want him on the front line, uh, but I also chopped uh, I chopped two guys who were brilliant guys, but they just didn't they didn't have it. One just had no aggression whatsoever, and it killed me to chop him, but I had to chop him because. It, 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 you know, you, you reconcile yourself with the fact that you probably saved his life uh, from some drama later on in a fast jet. You know, it, it's that sort of thing. Probably not true at all, but that's how you reconciled it. Um, being an instructor was brilliant. The majority of people I flew with passed the course and went on to fly brilliant fast jet aeroplanes. But you, you kind of remember the ones that didn't quite make it and the two I had in the hand of uh, chopping you know, it was a horrible thing for me. Worse for them, but uh, but horrible for me. But I think, and I hope, everybody thinks I gave them a fair crack of the uh, crack of the whip. And I I don't think that was always the case when I was a student at Tac Weapons. So that's what I think changed. I think it was there was a bit more of a fairness about it. Again, I, I think it. You know, it's um, we talked about personalities earlier on. I was just so so lucky that when I went through Chivner as a student. That uh, the squadron I went there, there are two squadrons there, um, one five one and another one. And uh, the, again, the instructors on one five one were kind of exactly as Tug Ted. If you made the effort, they made the effort for you. And uh, on the other squadron, they just had to get you. Um, and, and, and I think that to an extent, you know, it's a bit like life, really. You know, all the way through flying training. And I think back at you know, even at Twicky and things like that, and the squadron, it was the people who kind of made it or, or, or didn't. Or, or, you know, or, or can make it either great fun and successful or can make it bloody miserable and, and, and a failure. Um, so I, I think it does depend an awful lot on personalities. And, and you know, the, the, what Tugs just said, I, I recognise myself through being a student on Twiki of people just thinking, yeah, he's worth it, let's just make the effort for him. Um, when, when others might have turned around and said, no, bugger off, you're not good enough. Um, it's funny, isn't it? But, I, I went through 151 and it was shit. We were looking over the uh, fence at 63 going, uh, God, I wish we'd been on that uh, on that squadron. And but I think that would be the case just before as well, his, his personalities. Yeah, and in true gallows humour style, Gareth, all that happened was we drank ourselves into a frenzy <laughs> on Friday night. Uh, happy Hour at Chivener uh, was epic. It was yeah. absolutely epic. 
because we all thought we were going to be chopped on uh, on the on the Monday. And so we, um, I mean, it was great prep for the front line because the front line was a was a booze ex from start to finish, you know. So uh, perhaps that's what they were doing. They were making our lives miserable to prepare us for the immense amount of alcohol that we were going to imbibe on the uh, on the front that's, line. That's training for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, isn't that uh, great training? Training by stealth. That's, that's what they were. It was that business of, of actually chopping someone. I, I one guy that I had to chop. And it, it just felt awful. As I, I remember you know, talking to him and saying, "Sorry, mate, that's it. You're chopped." And seeing someone, oh, you broke like, it. You broke it to him gently, then. I said, "Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, was it? But, uh, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, but but it was. It, it, it was actually an awful thing to do because you're actually destroying someone's dream, and it was just a dreadful, yeah. bloody thing to do. It really was. But as Toke says, I did it because I knew that if if he'd gone any further, you end up killing somebody, probably me. So, you know, actually, it's, um, you know, another thing, I understand he's sort of, you know, made a great career elsewhere, but, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's an awful, it's a really awful thing, you know, we're quite clear about it, it's a really, really awful thing to have to do, actually, to sit down and tell someone they've got nothing, they're chopped, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a dreadful thing to do, actually. It's just occurred to me, actually, we're, at this point in time, we're not too far removed from the BBC series Fighter Pilot, are we, which I think was 1981, or that's at least when it was broadcast on um on tv and I, I think those of us who've watched it in the the uk and i'm aware that we have listeners from further afield than that so they might not know what i'm talking about but this is a fly on the wall of i think six pilots or six guys trying to become pilots in the air force now, i always remember i think it was the valley instructor saying you know you don't want to go to war with a wanker on your wing and you know i mean I mean, you certainly can't imagine anyone in the Air Force saying anything like that on the TV now, but uh, I guess in some ways that kind of sums it up a little bit. Well, it did, and uh, but, but of course they posted all the wankers to uh, to fourteen at Bruggen. I think that was um, <laughs> that was how we made sure we didn't have any on our uh, uh, on our squad. <laughs> there we go. You, you, you have to get you have to get your dig in first, Mike. It doesn't, it doesn't work when you just come back every. Yeah, no. The, the um, of course, as a, as a kid, I I lapped up watching uh, watching that fighter policies. But they've done like two or three since then. Yeah, yeah. Um, following students through uh, through Valley, and um, do you know what? It it's just it just looks completely different. A couple of the um students who went through that original fighter pilot series were my um my instructors at Linton on Ooze. You know, so I, I, I kind of recognise them. Um, one of them's like a legendary, uh, legendary, legendary guy in the uh, in the air force, and um, and and we then uh, went through that kind of uh, that kind of system, and the system is markedly different now. Mike's Mike's son's going through the system now, and it is markedly uh, different from from the one that uh, that we went through. Not only is it more. Uh, you know, everything is more geared towards getting the best out of the student now because there are so few students um, and it was a bit of a sausage machine for us. But it, it ours was a it was an absolute sink or swim. But I do believe we had a much better social time of it. I, th- I think the camaraderie was was better. I'm not saying that the guys and girls don't stick up for each other now, but there's so few of them. They, they they haven't got the herd mentality that uh, uh, that we had, and the student body had a momentum all of its own. I think that's very true. I mean, the you know nowadays we've got courses maybe three or four guys, whereas we had you know, going through um, fifteen going through BFCS, um, 
think eight or nine going through advanced training, um, about 10, I think, going through the tactical weapons unit. And you, you're exactly as Doug says, you, you kind of had a, um, it had a momentum of its own. And we are actually, I mean, we are actually herd animals. Um, and so if, if you're not in the herd, it, it, it does hurt. And the number of times that everybody had, you know, everybody has difficulties and <clears throat> at you know, different times because people are good at different things um, at, at different times. So you, you'd end up you know, looking after your mates who are having a hard time. And then when your hard time came, they look after you. But if you haven't got yeah. any mates because there's only four guys on the course or you both have a hard time at the same time, then you know, you've got no hope at all. So it's a completely different, uh, you know, a particularly social thing. And, and again, you know, I probably same for Doug, but I mean, a lot of my closest friends are the guys I went through, uh, went through basic fun training with. They ended yeah. up on, 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 on the tornado squad as well, but uh, you know that that was that was where the friendship was uh, you know, w- w- was born there. And um, you know, that, that, one of the great things about um, we we're talking about becoming uh, tack weapons instructors ourselves was that, um, of course, I went through training with uh, with a group of people, and we we got split to the four winds. I was the only guy from my uh, kind of friendship group that that went to the Phantom. And then I made the best friends of my life on the on the Phantom. And then when I came back to um, to be a TAC weapons instructor, and then thrown together with a load of GR1 guys, a couple of JAG guys, um, God forbid there was a Tornado F3 guy um, who we didn't really speak to at all, um, and and the odd um, and the odd Harrier guy as well, and a couple of Buccaneer guys. Harrier guy, yeah, yeah. And we were um, we were all kind of chucked together as instructors. And then what you saw there was the true worth of these people. So we, you know, we didn't rate any other squadron when we were on the on the Phantom, which is ballsy given we had the oldest aeroplane on the uh, on the block there. But then you just saw. So I, a, a bizarre thing, you know, I'm looking at Mike as a GR guy who taught air combat at TAC weapons, and you're probably laughing at me uh, punting around trying to teach uh, SAP and, and and low level. But then I would fly with some of the XGR1 guys on SAP sorties, and it would take my breath away at how good they were. But not only how good they were, how easy they found it. And hopefully they thought the same when they saw somebody like me teaching uh, air combat. And it was a brilliant tour to actually bring um, the Air Force's air crew uh, together because you saw the true worth in every fleet there. You had a grudging respect for every fleet but you didn't see it until you were working together, did you, as uh, as TAC weapons instructors? And it, and it's the only place where everybody really comes together from the fast jet world and does the job that fast jets uh, fast jets do. Yeah, it was, it was brilliant too, I have to say. <clears throat> so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you both the same question now. When I when I wrapped up the interview with Tug about his book, um, his Phantom book, um, he was told, I believe, that you know a couple of people have been reduced to tears um so it's not the intention but it's a similar um similar angle so mike i'm gonna ask you both the same question just how do you reflect now on your time as a fast jet pilot in the royal air force in germany in the cold war how do you look back what do you think of now when you look back at that period of your life um you must be very proud i guess for starters yeah, exactly that. I, I look back on it with, uh, with with massive pride. Yeah, it was it was great. It was as we've discussed already. It was a massive achievement to get there. And when you got there, you did a job that you really believed was uh, you know was was securing the world, was securing you know, the, the country, um, a really really worthwhile thing to do. And, and I I'm immensely proud of that. And you know I, I 
I was in the RAF, but to me, I was in RAF Germany. That's what matters to me. And, and, and that's something that I'm just desperately, incredibly proud of. And I look back and I think, yeah, that's something, something to be really, really proud of. So, yeah, I look back on it and I sometimes think, oh, I can't believe it happened, but it did. And, um, yeah, I, and that's it. It's, it. it's pride more than anything else that, that, that I feel when I look back on it. Tuck? Uh, I'm a pretty humble guy, Gareth. So I think pride is one of the deadly sins, and uh, and I'm, I'm shocked that uh, that's what Mike's uh, saying. Uh, of course, I'm I'm I think I'm as pr- uh, from a professional point of view, I'm as proud of that um, period of my life as anything I've ever done uh, before and since. The thing, the overriding thing that I I take from it was, um, I, I lived hard and I lived fast, harder and faster than I've ever done. Uh, in aeroplanes anywhere um, in those two years that I was uh, that I was based in Germany and because of that my um, my friendships were forged in a fire that um, that you didn't get anywhere else and because mm. of that as well my banter was forged in that uh, in that fire and if you didn't have banter in Germany you were just an also ran and you 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 frittered your life away there was no point you being there it was a hard school in everything that we did, but a nurturing hard school, as, as Mike said. People, if you fitted in, if you were a good person, people wanted you to succeed and they wanted you to wear their colours. And um, I still, uh, my house, is, uh, as my wife will attest to, uh, again, sighing heavily, my, my house is full of red and yellow stuff. Because uh, those are the colours of my yeah exactly, and it means something to us, doesn't it? Yeah, those colours yeah. mean something, and if they don't mean something, what did you bother going there for in the first place? <laughs> that's 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 the overriding factor, uh, uh, a memory of 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 that time. Live fast, you know, work hard, play hard. Uh, what what the hell else are you going to do with your life? Well, that's a brilliant place to end it. I I think this has worked just as I was hoping it was going to work. Um, And I hope everybody listening um, agrees with that. I don't know if we'll ever get to do this with two people that it works as well as this, to be honest. But uh, I might have to edit that bit out in case there is a good future version of this. But listen, both, thank you so much. I don't want you to hang up because... um, um, as our listeners won't be aware, we're using a, a new piece of technology here. So um, I'm going to hit stop recording in a minute, but don't hang up because I'm just desperate. I don't want to lose anything. So don't go anywhere. But um, Tug, thank you so much. Um, listen, a quick moment for you both, just a bit of a bit of self promotion. Um, F4 Phantom Confession, you know, Confessions of a Phantom Pilot is out there now, but there is something new um, on the horizon, and it's very much on a subject that we've just been talking about, isn't there? Yeah, Confessions of a Flying Instructor due out in uh, January, I think. So, uh, uh, Mike, uh, you need to read it and find out how to be a proper TAC weapons instructor because it's all uh, it's all in there. I'll, I'll read and learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, I've got to say, it's um, uh, it's pretty pretty hard hitting um, uh, with some uh, with some fairly stark stories in there of uh, me almost dying. Uh, in in flight and and that shouldn't happen it absolutely shouldn't happen uh in a training aeroplane so this one has been a whole lot more cathartic for me than uh, uh than writing the the last one was a bit of men behaving badly and and such like that i'm hoping people will see i've grown up a bit in this one but yeah due out uh, due out january um 
uh, and uh, I hope uh, I hope people enjoy it as much as they enjoyed the other one. Yeah, uh, sure. Mike, you, you you are an author that we've all grown to to know and love your work over recent years. What, what are you working on at the moment, or I can just, you tell us? I, I can actually. Yeah, I've got three running at the moment. Bizarrely, um, uh, one. On oh, geez, the, so I've, I've got two more, Gareth. All right, so if he's plugging three, I've got two more in the pipeline as well. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, there's a. We, I've done one on the air wars over Afghanistan, which, which, which is quite interesting. I mean, they're, they're that same sort of um, illustrated um, sort of uh, style that, that, that we used for, for the last few. Um, but that's looking at the Russians or Soviets um, in the 80s and NATO, obviously, in the uh, 2000s through 2020s. It's been really interesting uh, doing that, actually, and, and seeing what, what we got up to. And, and actually, seeing how nobody seems to have learned the lesson from, I think it was 1860 or something, whenever it was that the first Afghan war went on, uh, when when the British decided that they wanted to change the regime, went in there, changed the regime, thought they'd stabilise it and then left, and, and they were already wrong, and uh, all got kicked out, shall we say. And that's exactly what happened to the Russians and exactly what happened to NATO. So, yeah, t- talk about history, history repeating itself. Yeah. Done one on, um, again, one of these um, slim Austrian books on... Um, on the, career, the strategic bombing campaign over Korea, just putting, just coming to the end of doing one for their air, uh, combat aircraft series on the Harrier GR7 and 9. Now, I was asked to do that, and I thought, yeah, a bunch of wankers, they never do anything. But actually, um, <laughs> I discovered that, hey, they did an awful lot, actually. Um, and yeah, do, do you know what, Mike? I was I was going to buy it based on that yeah. uh, bunch of wankers <laughs> that didn't do anything, and now you spoiled it. I was quite, yes, I was quite disappointed. I discovered they did an awful lot actually, um, and and done it very well. And also, the guys were really on board with uh, you know, with with, um, with giving me information about what they got up to. So, uh, you know, it's the first time that we've been able to look at what they got up to in the Balkans and um, but, uh, for, for the two operations there out in Iraq and uh, in Afghanistan. So uh, that, that's quite fun doing that one. Excellent. Well, we should we should look out for those, and I know that you will. You'll both be back on extended because there's going to be books to talk about, and uh, and uh, I look forward to doing that. And I hope at some point, you know, the three of us could get together and have a a beer in person. And uh, there's there's yeah, that'd be cool. there's, yeah. there's a there's a lot lot more stories to tell. I I know I know that much. But thank you both very much for giving up your time, and uh, I do really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Super. Good to see you, Gareth. Good to see you, Mike. Yeah, you too, too. legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear the programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program and leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. It's
is XTP Media.